Welcome to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. This podcast series was developed from a live PCE conference focused on gastrointestinal and genitourinary cancers, including gastric cancer, colorectal cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer. In each episode, you will hear the latest evidence and expert recommendations for the care of patients with a specified malignancy. In this podcast series, each of these topics will be discussed in two podcast episodes covering didactic presentation of the available evidence, relevant case discussions to illustrate clinical implementation strategies, and the audience Q&A session. Be sure to listen to the two podcast episodes for each topic in sequential order as they may include examination of continuing case studies with patients progressing through different stages of their care. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash G-I-G-U. Welcome back to our PCE bootcamp lecture. Uh, I'm going to continue the lecture now on studies of second line and subsequent therapy in advanced or metastatic gastric cancer. So what are the preferred second line or subsequent treatments for advanced or metastatic gastric cancer? So here I've listed potential therapeutic options. The standard of care in HER2 negative patients or HER2 positive patients is now the combination of ramucirumab plus paclitaxel. A less optimal choice would be ramucirumab alone. The combination with paclitaxel is preferred. In HER2 positive patients progressing on frontline trastuzumab, we achieved recent regulatory approval for FAM trastuzumab durix tecan as a second line option in HER2 positive patients. Then we have the less optimal options of chemotherapy alone, including docetaxel or in a TCAN, 5 if you are in a TCAN. Third line and beyond, we have an approved agent, trifluridine to pericil, which is approved in chemotherapy refractory gastric cancer. Again, ramucirumab paclitaxel is the preferred option in this setting. Therapy selection is dependent on performance status and prior therapy. Again, uh, first line, we're going to use oxaliplatin and uh, leucovorin with 5-FU, but uh, the issue mainly in second line would be the selection of ramucirumab paclitaxel or potentially famtrastuzumab durex-tecan in HER2-positive patients. So what are other therapies that are useful in circum circumstances in later-line treatment? Again, we talked about next-generation sequencing to identify these really rare genomic abnormalities. For Entrec gene fusion-positive disease, we have blanket approval for drugs like entrectinib or larotrectinib, which target this pathway and yield fairly high response rates and fairly durable responses. We previously had approval of the use of pembrolizumab in pdl one positive patients in refractory disease, but now pembrolizumab is approved first line in esophageal and G-junction adenocarcinomas and squamous cancers plus chemotherapy. We have to remember, however, that drugs like pembrolizumab have an exquisite level of activity in MSI higher mismatch repair protein tumors, so immune checkpoint inhibitors can be considered treatment first line, later line, and MSI high cancers given the high degree of activity. Pembrolizumab is also approved uh, agnostic of the tumor type in TMB high tumors with greater than or equal to 10 mutations per megabase. However, we would list this uh, with a grain of salt because on the trial that got approval for the TMB high patients, not a single patient had esophagogastric cancer. And then we have another agent approved for MSI higher mismatch repair protein tumors agnostic of the tissue type. Dostarlamab is also approved now for the use of MSI high cancers. Again, therapy selection depends on performance status and prior therapy. 
And as we said earlier, this really applies to first-line treatment. We prefer oxaliplatin and leucovorin 5 few combinations. Dristalumab was recently approved to use an MSI higher mismatch repair of deficient cancers who had disease progression on prior treatment and no satisfactory alternative. So similar to the tumor agnostic approval for pembrolizumab. Second-line immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy is only recommended for patients who did not have prior immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So if you have an MSI high patient that you learned about this later that had gotten previous chemotherapy, uh, you might consider checkpoint inhibitor high on the list as a highly active option in an MSI high uh, patient. But again, arguably in metastatic disease, we would give a checkpoint inhibitor first line in an MSI high uh, patient, either alone or in combination with chemotherapy. So what are the data for paclitaxel ramisuramab as second-line treatment? This was a pivotal randomized trial that looked at patients progressing on first-line fluorinated pyrimidine platinum-based chemotherapy. And this was a placebo-controlled trial in over 650 patients comparing paclitaxel ramisuramab versus paclitaxel placebo. And you can see from the table that this was a positive trial. It, this was a new benchmark survival in second line of nearly 10 months a two-month improvement in overall survival, and a slight increase in hematologic toxicity, but overall manageable toxicity. And also there was a significant improvement in response rate as well, and progression-free survival. So this is the standard of care after patients receive initial Fulfox or Kpox, and now arguably that have received Fulfox or Kpox with nivolumab. So what about uh, tristizumab deruxtecan? So uh, this agent uh, is clearly active uh, in later-line treatment of HER2-positive metastatic esophagogastric cancer, and the pivotal trial that led to approval of this drug in the United States and Japan uh, is listed here. Trastuzumab deruxtecan is an antibody drug conjugate linking trastuzumab with a cytotoxic agent exotecan, which is a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, and in an open-label randomized phase two trial in patients progressing on first-line trastuzumab, patients uh, were assigned to physician choice chemotherapy or trastuzumab deruxtecan. And we can see in the more than 180 patients treated that uh, the uh, response rate was significantly improved, 14% for chemotherapy alone, 51% for FAM trastuzumab deruxtecan. The confirmed response rate was 40%. So a substantial increment in response rate. Recently, the survival was updated more than a year, median overall survival compared to eight months for chemotherapy. Progression-free survival was improved, and duration of response was improved. So based on these data, famtristizumab deruxtecan is now approved uh, as second or later line treatment in patients progressing on first-line HER2-targeted therapies. So what about later line use of pembrolizumab? So Keynote 59 was a uh, phase two expansion cohort trial looking at gastric or G-junction adenocarcinomas receiving two or more lines of prior chemotherapy. The dependence uh, of benefit for pembrolizumab was really seen in the pdl one status. So you can see that uh, even though the median progression-free survival in pdl one positive versus negative was not different, you can clearly see a tail on the curve in this left-hand panel showing that some patients get durable benefit for pembrolizumab in the refractory disease setting if they're pdl one positive, with little or no benefit in pdl one negative patients. And overall survival, again, the median was not that much different, but again, you see a tail on the curve with some patients achieving a, a durable survival benefit. So based on this study, 
pembrolizumab was approved and chemotherapy refractory esophagogastric cancers that were PD-L1 positive. However, this approval was recently rescinded uh, because now we have approval for pembrolizumab and nivolumab first line. And the supporting trials that were going to reinforce this conditional approval were negative. Keynote 62, which was the first line Pembro trial in gastric cancer, was a negative trial. And Keynote 61, which compared pembrolizumab versus paclitaxel, the second line, was also a negative trial. So the uh, use of this drug in refractory disease, even if patients are PDL1 positive, was recently rescinded. So, what's the treatment selection in metastatic gastric cancer for second or later line treatment? Again, we also have to assess every patient as an individual. What are their treatment goals, their performance status, and prior therapy? What's their HER2 status, the presence of rare targetable gene fusions like NTREC, the presence of MSI high status, or potentially tumor mutational burden are all important considerations when selecting second or subsequent line treatment. Single-agent pembrolizumab for patients that are MSI high or TMB high or single-agent dostarlamab are now approved for MSI high, high, MSI high patients who have not received prior immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. And a later line option, third or fourth line, is the use of trifluridine topiracil or TAS-102 as an option in refractory disease, really irrespective of any biomarker. So the boot camp takeaway is optimal treatment decision-making in the second line necessitates understanding of HER2 status, mismatch repair protein uh, status, NTREC status, and TMB status. So let's continue our case. Uh, we saw in the earlier podcast that our patient had progressed on previous Folfox nivolumab. So we initiated standard paclitaxel and ramucirumab, and we uh, counseled uh, the patient and his caretaker to be alert of any potential symptoms or adverse events. So typically, patients are on paclitaxel ramucirumab for an average of six to eight months. So what's next? Trifluridine topiracil is an approved agent based on positive results from the TAGS trial. This was a randomized phase three trial, which improved overall survival and progression-free survival. Patients with refractory gastric cancer receiving two, uh, more than two or lines or higher of treatment were randomized to uh, supportive care alone placebo versus supportive care plus trifluridine topiracil. This uh, trial resulted in a modest improvement in overall and progression-free survival, and benefits were seen across the subgroups, including patients with previous gastrectomy. So the treatment stabilizes the cancer and prolongs uh, maintenance of performance status. If we have a patient in third or fourth line with rapidly progressive disease, this would not be an appropriate drug because it really doesn't induce responses. It basically stabilizes the cancer. So this might be a patient that has good performance status, there is progressive disease, but it's not explosive. And uh, we would treat the patient hoping to stabilize the situation, control the cancer. But uh, realistically, we do not see responses to this agent. This is quite a well-tolerated drug. We do see hematologic toxicity, much less commonly diarrhea. And uh, typically, this uh, schedule is given two weeks on and two weeks off. So we do uh, give patients a recovery time if there are hematologic toxicities. We can consider, consider dose reductions and monitoring patients carefully for side effects, but generally a tolerable alternative in the refractory disease setting. We always want to improve adherence to oral therapies. There are some patients that we just can't rely upon to take oral drugs. Toxicity management is also key to ensuring the timely delivery of the planned dose, and we have to educate our patients and caregivers and supportive staff 
about possible toxicities and preventive measures. And we have to reassure patients that patients receiving uh, trifluoridine to pyrosil, that toxicities uh, will be manageable and uh, if we make dose reductions tend to decrease over time. We have to provide tools and strategies to lessen confusion, including calendars or electronic minders. And we wanna make use of digital tools such as the patient portal. So the take home message is educating our patients and their caregivers about the importance of adherence to oral therapies and reporting side effects and communicating to their physicians to make sure we have timely dose reductions or interruption of therapy as need be. So what are the boot camp takeaways? Uh, starting from our first talk, genetic counseling is essential for all patients with a suspected hereditary predisposition for gastric cancer. We should test all patients with metastatic gastric cancer for mismatch repair protein deficiency or MSI high status, HER2 status, and pdl one expression. And then with uh, the subsequent use of next generation sequencing, the presence of rare gene abnormalities like NTREC gene fusions, tumor mutational burden, and potential amplification of other gene pathways, which might uh, make the patient a candidate for a trial, and then validating mismatch repair protein status by determining uh, microsatellite instability. Patient goals and performance status, as well as the biomarkers that we talked about, HER2, mismatch repair, and pdl one biomarkers, all need to be taken into account when selecting first-line therapy. We have to be alert to the types of and potential for immune-related adverse events in patients receiving immunotherapy and educate patients and caregivers about symptoms. And the second line, optimal treatment decision-making, necessitates, again, a knowledge of the HER2 status, mismatch repair protein status or MSI status, and again, the rare targetable NTREC status and tumor mutational burden status. We need to educate patients and their caregivers about the importance of adherence to oral therapies and optimizing treatment outcomes. So let's have a brief uh, Q&A session. Uh, we did get some uh, questions generated from our audience participation. So this is a key question. What is the average life expectancy of someone diagnosed with metastatic gastric cancer? Can we see improvement in life expectancy with treatment? And how well is treatment tolerated? So the average life expectancy in metastatic gastric cancer has clearly improved with the advent of new therapies, which we discussed, including immunotherapy, HER2-targeted therapies, paclitaxel ramucirumab, trifluoridine to parasol. So we're now measuring average life expectancy of more than a year. That was the benchmark achieved in the uh, checkpoint inhibitor trials. So typically, we now expect an average life expectancy of more than a year. And now with the more options for treatment, we're now extending uh, survival out a year, a year and a half, two years or longer. So yes, there is a significant improvement in life expectancy with treatment. If we do not treat patients with metastatic gastric cancer, they often succumb to their illness within three to six months. So active treatment is clearly better than no treatment. How well is treatment tolerated? I think if we use regimens like capecitabine or 5-ethion oxaliplatin, and we make age-appropriate dose adjustments and monitor patients for toxicity. Treatment has side effects, but it generally is well-tolerated, and we have quality-of-life data from a number of these studies showing that we maintain quality of life on treatment. Let's move to the next question. We understand that selection of first-line therapy has a big impact on the course of disease and future treatment decisions. Can you please tell us the factors you consider most important when selecting first-line treatment? So as we've said uh, throughout the lecture, the key initial biomarkers in metastatic disease are HER2 status, mismatch repair protein deficiency status or MSI high status, and PDL1 status. 
So if a patient is MSI high or mismatch repair protein deficient, we could argue that patient should get upfront initial checkpoint inhibitor therapy, either by itself or in combination with chemotherapy. If a patient is HER2 positive, we would combine upfront chemotherapy with chastuzumab. And now in HER2 positive patients, we add pembrolizumab to all patients with first-line treatment, irrespective of pdl one status. If a patient is HER2 negative, then we have the option of Fulfox or capecitabine oxaliplatin with nivolumab. My practice is to consider using nivolumab in all patients. We have to remember now that checkpoint inhibitors are not available to HER2-negative patients beyond progression on first line. We do see response rate enhancements with checkpoint inhibitor therapies first line, but arguably survival benefits are far diminished in patients that are low uh, CPS or CPS negative. So these are the factors we consider in selecting treatment drugs. Then we have to individualize treatment uh, to each patient depending on their goals of therapy, their functional status, their medical comorbidities. We should always consider making dose adjustments in particularly our older patients with medical comorbidities. Uh, we know that these patients can have higher toxicities and we wanna individualize the treatment to each patient. This does not, however, mean that we cannot treat patients that are older with comorbidities. These patients can do quite well on chemotherapy, but we individualize the treatment to each patient. Could we elaborate on the study results of nivolumab as first-line treatment compared to subsequent treatment? Currently, we only have really later-line approval for drugs like nivolumab and pembrolizumab in esophageal squamous cancers. So recently, we achieved regulatory approval for both nivolumab and pembrolizumab as second-line treatment in squamous cancers of the esophagus. Nivolumab achieved approval regardless of pdl one status, and pembrolizumab was approved in esophageal squamous cancers with CPS scores greater than or equal to 10%. However, I suspect we are going to see further approval of checkpoint inhibitors in the first-line treatment of esophageal squamous cancers. And as I said earlier, pembrolizumab, even though we had a negative trial of pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy in gastric cancers, we did have a positive trial for pembrolizumab in esophageal and GE junction squamous cancers and adenocarcinomas. So pembrolizumab is now first-line treatment for esophageal and GE junction adenocarcinoma and squamous cancers. I think we're going to see a lesser utilization of these drugs in later-line treatment. The exception would be the MSI high patient that, for whatever reason, did not receive checkpoint inhibitor uh, earlier. We would uh, clearly use a checkpoint inhibitor in second or later-line treatment in an MSI high positive uh, patient. What about the adverse events of trastuzumab durex tcan in the DESTINY trial? So neutropenia is a significant toxicity and also pneumonitis. Uh, lung inflammation is a unique toxicity to this drug. It's seen in about 10 to 15% of patients. It's usually grade one or two, and we have to certainly monitor patients with imaging, follow pulse oximetry, and certainly follow symptoms. This is a potentially severe and potentially life-threatening uh, toxicity. In the phase two trials of uh, gastric cancer, we did not see any fatal events of uh, pneumonitis, but again, about 10 to 15% of patients develop this, and it's grade three or higher in about a third to half of the patients. This requires discontinuation of tristizumab durex tcan and institution of steroids. And usually the, the uh, toxicity is manageable with steroids and with discontinuation of the drug. Do you perform molecular testing for postoperative patients, or you do you reserve it for the advanced disease setting? That's a great question. Right now, uh, next-generation sequencing does not play a clear role in adjuvant management, 
So if, if a patient's had, let's say, perioperative chemotherapy and gastrectomy, we don't really know how to use genomic profiling in that setting. The exception would be MSI high status. So it turns out uh, for a locally advanced gastric cancer, if that patient is MSI high or mismatch repair protein deficient, and remember, that's about 7% of gastric cancers, these patients have a better prognosis. So MSI high gastric cancers that are locally advanced have a better prognosis. And actually, they may be candidates for surgery only without adjuvant chemotherapy. Recent pooled analyses from preoperative and adjuvant studies indicate that the highest survival in these trials is in patients that were MSI high that underwent surgery alone with no other treatment. So best survival in MSI high patients that got surgery alone with survival in excess of 80 to 85%. When we give those patients chemotherapy, either in the pre or postoperative setting, there is evidence that there potentially is no benefit for chemotherapy or even the pooled analysis suggested a survival detriment for patients with MSI high cancers. So uh, the answer to this question, I would not mandate molecular testing in the operative setting. However, we are now routinely testing all gastric cancers that are newly diagnosed with locally advanced disease for mismatch repair protein status or MSI high status. An MSI high or mismatch repair protein deficient gastric cancer has a better prognosis might be a candidate for surgery alone, and arguably there may be harm or detriment with chemotherapy. Uh, I don't have time to review the data today, but there are provocative data emerging for giving checkpoint inhibitors as preoperative treatment for MSI high gastric cancers with very high rates of response and very encouraging survivals. So I think the next research study in MSI high or mismatch repair protein deficient gastric cancers will be looking at immune therapy as a first-line treatment. In the advanced disease setting, we should probably profile all patients, again, looking for the rare gene rearrangements, targetable mutations, validating MSI status, et cetera. So there's a question here about autoimmune hepatitis. Does the bilirubin increase as well, or just the liver enzymes? Arguably, the bilirubin rise is always more worrisome and concerning, and actually small bilirubin elevations are graded much higher in terms of toxicity. You can see rise in bilirubin or transaminases, and then the issue depends on the grade. So the degree of elevation would dictate intervention. Sometimes we can get away with low doses of steroids. Sometimes, again, the half to one milligram per kilogram dosing or higher dosing for more severe autoimmune hepatitis. And again, these are indications to interrupt uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors and institute steroid uh, therapy. I think we've uh, reached the end of our Q&A session. It's been my pleasure today uh, to host our podcast, and thank you again for participating. Thank you for listening to the Practicing Clinicians Exchange podcast. To claim your credit, please visit pce.is forward slash GIGU. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our website for more complimentary oncology CE CME activities.